Here's how the online claim went. Are you ready? It said this. Probably one of those little banner ads. I don't know exactly where it was right on the screen. It said this. If you do, sorry, if you just do this one thing, you can lose 50 pounds in 50 days. Whoa, what do you think of that? Maybe it was different. Maybe it was, if you just do this one thing, you'll have that beach body in weeks, not months. It was something like that. I can't remember the exact details. Um, And I don't know what the one thing actually was. You know why? Because I didn't click on it. (laughs) <laughs> I did. I, I've learned better. You know, I don't do that. So I'm not clicking on it. I don't, I couldn't tell you what that one thing was. But whatever the promise, what struck me was the marketing strategy involved. When you see something like that, you can't, you, you can't lose weight. The, the idea is that you cannot lose weight or fill in the blank, whatever, whatever it is they're selling. You can't do that because you've made everything too complex and therefore now you're discouraged. Isn't that kind of the reasoning behind the appeal of of an ad like that? And the ad is saying, guess what? Good news. It's actually all very simple. It's all very simple. It's just this one thing. If you do it, you'll have success. Now, there's something very appealing about that claim. If we could just simplify things, we believe, life would be easier. Well, what if I were to make a similar claim? You ready for it? Here it is. If you just do this one thing, you can experience life as it was meant to be lived. Wow, that sounds way better than losing 50 pounds, right? That sounds way better than losing weight or having a beach body. If you just do this one thing, you can experience life as it was meant to be lived. But wait a minute, isn't that just a marketing ploy like I was saying? Isn't that just another marketing ploy? Isn't that, as our youth say, clickbait, right? This is clickbait, from the pastor this morning. Well, hold on to that thought. Let's look together at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. Listen to Jesus as he talks about that one thing that is above every other one thing. Are you ready? Now, I'm guessing most of you are familiar with this passage here. And for those following our, our Bible reading plan... You'll probably remember this passage from Tuesday of last week. We read through Mark chapter 12. So here's the encounter preserved for us by Mark in verses 28 through 34. And one of the scribes, scribes were Jewish experts on the law. They had had the job of, of helping to preserve it, transcribe it, keep it documented. And they were reference guys to be able to go... Uh, to them with questions about the law of Moses. So it makes sense when you understand that. One of the scribes came up and heard them, Jewish, uh, sorry, Jesus and the Sadducees disputing with one another and seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, this scribe asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, 
The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So having just set the Sadducees straight about the resurrection, that's the passage right before ours this morning, we read that a scribe who was listening in, who overheard that conversation, concluded that Jesus would be a good, a good person to ask about a long-standing and much-discussed question among really generations of Jewish leaders. And that question was this. It's found in verse 28. Of the 613 commandments found in the law of Moses... This gentleman is asking, which commandment is the most important of all? What's number one, if we were to rank them? Now, some back in that day, and probably still some today, might answer that by saying, well, every commandment's from God, and therefore every commandment is equally important. There's some truth to that, right? But ultimately, that's not correct. And we can say that's not correct because Jesus says that's not correct. He, he actually provides an answer. Notice he doesn't correct the question. He answers the question. There is a most important commandment, in fact. And it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It, it's found in a declaration called the Shema Israel that is recited twice a day by every observant Jew even back in the day of Jesus. So talk about the, the answer staring you right in the face. It's kind of right there in front of you, right before, before you, every single day. They knew this passage very well. This morning, I'd like us to think very carefully about this most important command, since, according to Jesus, it is that one thing above every other one thing. So let's think carefully about this commandment by focusing on both the who and the how of the commandment. Sound good? The who and the how of the commandment. So in regard to the who of the commandment, if you look back at the verse, notice how Jesus includes the full confession from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. I believe other passages that contain this same account or a very similar account. 
they don't all contain the, the full quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Mark actually does. Look what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, why did Jesus choose to actually quote the entire confession? Well, notice that he wants to remind his listeners, I believe, that as Israel... They can truly speak about the Lord, our God. You see that? They know who God is. The Lord, your God, as he goes on to say. He's identifying, he's clarifying, he's narrowing it down, who he's talking about. Not only was he and is he the God of their ancestors, but he's also their God by covenant. That covenant enacted through Moses after their deliverance from Egypt. You can read about that in the book of Exodus. Also the book of Deuteronomy, which Deuteros Namas in Greek means second law. It's the second giving of the law to ratify and to enact it with the second generation who had come out of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. So very much this is covenant language. We're right kind of wrapped up in this idea of the covenant They are God's people. He is their God. Now, in addition to this, we're reminded here that the Lord is one. What exactly does that mean? Well, if you take a look at the original context, if we had a chance to do that, I believe it means that God, that Yahweh, is the one and only God who is truly God. In a world of many so-called gods, God was the only true God. Verse 32, the scribe seems to emphasize that same point. There's no other God besides him. So that's what Jesus is saying. That's what Deuteronomy is saying. The Lord is one. He's the only true God. Now we'll talk about that more in just a minute. But please don't miss that when it comes to this most important commandment of loving God, God's identity is absolutely critical. Let me say that again. If you are interested in learning any more about this most important commandment, and those two words should get you interested, this is the number one most important commandment, word of God, calling to human beings throughout the history of the world in all time and space. This is it, number one, according to Jesus himself. If we believe that and we want to know that and understand that, is this still working? Okay. Okay. So, if we want to understand that, God's identity is absolutely critical. Now, I'm stressing that point because we live in a culture in which still today... 80 to 90% of the population claims to believe in God or some kind of higher power. Now, the same pollsters, though, will tell us when they are careful with the language used and the questions asked, they will tell us that anywhere from 6 to 28% of the population may be genuine Christians. That sounds about right. Based, uh, based on my experience living in this world, that sounds somewhere about right. 
But if we take those two numbers, think about the great disparity between the 80 and 90% and those who are genuine born-again believers. You've got a huge group of people who claim to know God, but do not know God, truly. They do not know the God of the Scriptures. And how can you then love someone you do not know? You can certainly love the idea of someone, right? You can love the idea of God, an idea that you've shaped for the most part according to your own imagination. You can certainly love God as a theological concept or as a true north for your moral compass. You can certainly love religion and the supposed security of religious duty or the comforting smells and bells of religious tradition. You can even love the idea of God as a nationalistic symbol, as a values reference point, or as a kind of community glue, as simply a unifying principle that connects you to other people. But none of those are what Jesus is describing. If we are to love God, we must know God, who he is as a person, not as a concept, not as a symbol, not as community glue, foundation for our shared values. No, as a truly existing being, we must know who God is. To love God, you must know God. And to know God, you must seek God. And to seek God, you must look for Him in the very place where He's made Himself known. Yes, through creation. Yes, through the wondrous works that He's done throughout history. And yes, best of all, through Jesus Christ. But we know about such things. And we can make sense of such things because of the Scriptures. The word of God. Is that how you think about the Bible, brother, sister? Is that how you think about the word as a guide to genuinely loving God? The Bible is a guide to genuinely loving God. Now, if you're honest and if I'm honest with myself, I know that I don't always treat the Bible like that. I can treat it as a textbook. I can treat it as a history book. I can treat it as a manual for living. Right? I can treat it as a cachet, as a treasure chest of, of moral principles that I need to kind of guide me through life. But in fact, based on the most important commandments, we know what the Bible is. It is a guide to genuinely loving God because it reveals to us who God actually is. It reveals the truth about his character, his purposes, his will. Now, look back at the word. If we look back at, the, at this most important commandment in the text this morning, you, look, at the, look at the phrase. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That, that formula is familiar to us, but what does it mean? Why is he putting it like that? Why is the author of Deuteronomy put it that way? Well, remember what Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 declared. It said this, before the commandment, the confession. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. I suggested to you a moment ago that the phrasing there, the Lord is one, 
it actually affirms the fact that the God of Israel, the God of Jesus, is the one and only God who is truly God. If that's true, then the formula makes absolute sense, doesn't it? It makes perfect sense. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength is not first about loving God in every compartment of your life. No, 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 no. It's a warning to us against half-heartedness. It's a caution about divided loyalties. It's, a, it's wonderfully a call to cultivate an all-in devotion to God. Are you all-in? Is your love all-in? That's what this, this commandment is calling you to. Not half-heartedness. Not divided loyalties. Not watered-down affection. It's calling us to an all-in devotion to God. What Jesus is describing here is a fully invested love. While most of us are not contending with literal idols and false deities like ancient Israel, every single one of us, every single day, battles with a divided heart. It's true. You know it to be true. We all battle with a divided heart. Do you love God? Do you love God? You might sincerely answer yes, but your life might also be marked by a kind of devotion, an ultimate love that's directed at something else or many things. Now, I'm not talking about someone who simply says something like, I love football. Oh, I love football. I love the Cardinals. I love football. You can live by this most important command, commandment genuinely, sincerely. You can live by this command to love God and still love football. <laughs> I think we believe that to be true. But if, for example, football keeps you from gathering and growing with God's people on Sunday morning, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength may be divided. They may be divided. Now, in light of what we just heard about the Bible as a guide to genuinely loving God, we should be praying along with the psalmist in Psalm 86, verse 11. Teach me your way, Lord, Yahweh, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. What a prayer. What a powerful prayer. Grab hold of it. Now, before we move on, I'd like us to briefly consider just two more things. We've talked about the who and the how that Jesus has indicated here in terms of the most important commandment. Let me give you two other just observations. First, this priority, the priority of this one thing above every other one thing, it's actually confirmed by the man's closing assessment, or at least how Jesus talks about the man's closing assessment in verses 32 through 33. The scribe, as we saw, wholeheartedly affirms the answer that Jesus gives. You can almost see the man's excited about the answer Jesus gives, right? He hears Jesus saying, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm thinking too. Like, you're, man, that's right. That's right. 
So you see that. So, so when he's, when he's, when the man emphasizes the importance of love for God, and, and, and when he says that the importance of love of God and love of others is even more important than the ritual sacrifices of the Mosaic covenant, of that old covenant. I love how Jesus responds to him. How does Jesus respond to the man's response to Jesus' original response? <laughs> how does he do it? Verse 34, he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now that sounds a little weird, but it's a great compliment. It's an encouraging word. It's such an encouraging word. Because I think what Jesus is saying is, when you, like you've done, correctly put first things first, it's an indication that God is at work in you. That God is in fact preparing you for the message of the kingdom that I am bringing. That's what Jesus is saying about this man and God's work in him. Brothers and sisters, friends, this is just another reminder to us, this word that you are not far from the kingdom of God. It's just another reminder to us about the importance of putting first things first in the Christian life. Now, second, a second observation real quickly. Of his own accord, don't miss how Jesus provides a second. It's the runner-up commandment, right? <laughs> it's a second commandment. I don't want to, like, minimize it, right, by calling it a runner-up commandment. That kind of sounds like I'm dismissive of it. No, not at all. Why does he, of his own accord, offer this number two? He's just asked about one. He offers two as well. Well, I think he does so. Because the first, like the first, that's concerned with our vertical relationship, this second commandment is also helping us to put first things first when it comes to our horizontal relationships. And God's word regularly ties these two things together. It includes them in so many places together. So closely that I believe that we can still talk about just doing this one thing. That's why Jesus just thinks naturally of the two going together. We're really still just talking about one thing. So believer, here's what I hope you will take away from this pivotal passage. These verses are not just one more addition to your database of devotional duties okay it's not just one more addition look at this these verses are emphasizing the absolute priority of god-directed fully invested love let me say it again these verses are emphasizing for us the absolute priority of god-directed fully invested love if Jesus wants you to think about anything in terms of the Christian life, he wants you to think about this idea. This is the priority for you. Why is this most important command so very important? Because it establishes a fixed reference point for us. A fixed reference, reference point for living life as it was meant to be lived. That means it applies in every single area of your life this word it applies in every single area of your life and every single thing that you do so let me just quickly adjust the claim that i made at the outset if you just do this one thing in 
all things, you can experience life as it was meant to be lived. If you just do this one thing, in all things, you can experience life as it was meant to be lived. God-directed, fully invested love. When it comes to living out your faith, I think you would agree that it's easy to get distracted. In this world that we live in, the condition we find ourselves in oftentimes, we busy ourselves with ministry. We make lists for ourselves. We make lists of really bad and kind of bad sins, and then we check how we're doing against it. Uh, we talk about so- sound doctrine. We get distracted by culture wars. We read the latest books and listen to the latest praise songs. We give money. We socialize with the saved. We give literature to the lost. But sadly, in all our busyness, in all our spiritual pursuits, we may in fact be neglecting the most important command to simply love God wholeheartedly, wholelifedly, if I can coin that word, wholeheartedly, wholelifedly, just to love God with everything that you are. But wait, aren't we called to do many things as believers? Aren't there lists of things? Aren't there instructions? Aren't there encouragements? All throughout the Word, especially the New Testament, writing to followers of Jesus Christ, aren't we instructed to do many things? Yes, but this God-directed, fully invested love invariably directs us deeper into that fullness of the Christian life. The person who is seeking above all else, above all else, to love God wholeheartedly will want to know God more fully, talk with God more frequently, please God more faithfully, and worship God more freely. That's what it will do inside of you as it drives you forward through the power of the Holy Spirit. Love then becomes this driving force in our learning, in our fellowship, in our decisions, in our service, in our relationship, in our finances. This most important commandment reminds us what is most important when it comes to our motives. Why we do what we do. And God calls us to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves, doesn't he? He wants you to give attention to your heart. He wants you to give attention to your motives of why you are doing what you are doing. He often, in love, scolded the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders about their hearts, right? You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Why are you doing what you're doing? To be seen by people in the marketplace? To be respected? To be revered? To be adored by men? You prefer the glory of men over the glory that comes from the only true God. And you could go on and on. You see, he wanted them to understand what was actually happening in their hearts, their motives. And here he is driving us back to this pure, beautiful motive of the love of God. Thus, in light of this, when you give absolute priority in your Christian life to God-directed, fully invested love, 
the Christian life becomes an expression of love rather than a devotion to duty or a religious pastime. It directs us to ask first, not what a Christian does, but who a Christian loves. What captures the heart of a Christian? What grips the heart of a believer? That's what we need to ask first. The rest will then begin to follow. I'm not making this up, of course. The Apostle Paul understood this. Take a look at this beautiful verse as he works through the very specific situation going on in Galatia. He says this to them. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. Talk about boiling it all down. Talk about the essence of what he's trying to communicate to them. He says, you can argue theologically about these points. You can argue about circumcision, uncircumcision. You're wrong about circumcision and requiring it. But I don't want you to gravitate to the other side and start kind of wielding that axe, of theological axe and saying, hey, hey, this is the way it's got to be. You, you are called to love one another. Faith working through love. Does the law have a place in that? Absolutely. But we can't miss what Jesus is describing for us here. Now think about all this in the context of Mark's gospel, the gospel that we have been reading through together. In our readings and in our lessons, we've talked about how Mark reveals the incomparable identity of Jesus. We then talked about a right response to his identity, the revelation of his identity. What was that right response? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me, says Jesus. So what has God provided us with this morning? He's given us the crown jewel of what it means to follow Christ. This is it. You want to follow the Savior, a right response to who Jesus truly is. If you want to follow him, then take a look at what Jesus is saying here. We follow Jesus best when we put loving God first. We follow Jesus best when we put loving God first. You see, Jesus not only spoke about a God-directed, fully invested love, He lived it. All the way to His death on the cross. And even beyond that, even still, our resurrected Lord, our faithful high priest, who stands now at the right hand of the Father, our faithful high priest, is fulfilling for all eternity these two commands. He is loving God with his whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he is loving his neighbor as himself. And he will always fulfill those. He will always fulfill those. Isn't that an amazing thought? How beautiful. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then this morning God is calling you to make sure first things are first. If you just do this one thing in all things, you can experience life as it was meant to be lived. Now, He knows how easy it is for us to get distracted. He knows how we are tempted to make lists, to get discouraged. He knows 
how we are often enticed by so many other one things that this world is peddling. One thing. Here's the one thing. Here's the one thing. Here's the one thing. If you want to be happy, you want to be fulfilled, you want to be successful, here's that one thing. God knows that we're bombarded by that every day. He understands that. He knows about our struggles and He cares. How do I know that? Because He gave His only Son. He gave His Son for you, for me. Think with me about the things in your life that inspire love. Yeah, you can start with football, sure. If you love football, why do you love football? What inspires you to love about football? What inspires you to love about veal piccata? What inspires you to love your grandkids, your, your, your spouse, a beautiful work by Monet or Mamet or whoever, right? What inspires love in you? Think about those things. Now ask yourself this. Could anyone... Or anything be worthy of our love like God is worthy of our love. And the good news about Jesus, the gospel, puts that on display like nothing else. God revealed in all of his greatness and beauty. In the gospel of Jesus. I hope you know that gospel. I hope that gospel is precious to you. I hope it inspires love in you. What does 1 John 4, 19 say? It says this. We love because he first loved us. That's the only way this love is possible. Because he first loved us. Because he took that old heart of stone and replaced it with a new heart of flesh. Because he lavished on us his grace. Because he poured out his Holy Spirit on us richly. That we might have power for a new life. There's a new self. There's a new you. If any man or woman is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Do you believe that? That's the power source for this kind of love that Jesus is describing, a God-directed, fully invested kind of love. Brothers and sisters, friends, only Jesus can turn God-haters like us into God-lovers. Now, some of you might be caught off guard by that and say, God-haters? That's what the Scriptures teach. Scriptures teach that apart from the grace of God, we are enemies of God and there's great hostility between us and God. We hate God. We don't listen to Him. We hate Him so much that we wish He was dead and that we could have His throne. We could sit on that throne and we could do whatever we want. Oh, we might like the idea of God shaped according to our imagination. We might like God in that box. We might like God as that nationalistic symbol, that values reference point, that social glue. But the true God who demands, who calls all creation to submit to him because he alone is worthy, praise to him. We hate him. 
And the only thing that's going to change that is the power of God working through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? Amen. And so when we learn about what is this most important command, please don't miss the fact that it's not about you. It's about Christ in you and the Holy Spirit giving you power to live this out. But when he does this, when he changes you, and I pray that you're changed this morning if you're not already, come to him in faith. But when he does this, if he has, then let's keep asking him for and let's encourage one another in the grace to live each day in light of the most important commandments. What does that look like? As I said before, the person seeking above all else to love God wholeheartedly will want to know God more fully, to talk with God more frequently, to please God more faithfully, and to worship God more freely. We need this corrective, don't we? So easy to get off track and lose sight of the heart, lose sight of the focus, that goal. And I know that I need this desperately. So let's go to God even now. Let's ask Him to help us make what is most important, most important in our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray that we would give absolute priority by grace through faith to a life of fully, sorry, a life of God-directed, fully invested love. Pray with me if you would.